We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 tonight. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. There's an old fable, not a true story, <laughs> just a fable, about one day when the devil had a garage sale. I, I had to say that because I, I know all of you probably know that uh, that's not in the Bible, but you know somebody may watch this on the recording and get the wrong idea. Devil had a garage sale, and so all the evil people from all over the world came out to see what they could find. And they're scouring through all his discarded weapons and tools, and one said, hey, what's that nasty-looking thing hanging up on the wall? And the devil said, well, that's not for sale. He said, I know, but what is it? And the devil said, it's discouragement, and I'll never sell it. It's the best tool I have. It is true that the devil uses discouragement against the people of God. Uh, I think discouragement has knocked more people out of the service of the Lord than anything else, more than any temptation, more than any persecution. I personally know so many people, it's heartbreaking to know so many people. Some of them were once in vocational ministry, pastors, youth ministers, music ministers, some of them are lay people who were once Sunday school teachers, deacons, leaders in various ministries, and now some of them sit in a pew but never serve. They're never going to do that again. And some of them have dropped out of church entirely. I remember one young woman uh, who's my age. We grew up together, and she one year decided she was going to be the Sunday school director, the VBS director for her church, and. She did a bang-up job. They'd never had a VBS like that before. But in the process, they ended up spending a little more money than they had before. Now, the church had the money. They didn't spend money on anything. So she got a little criticism for spending too much money. And she was never going to do that again. It was the best VBS ever. Never did it again because she tried her best and all she got was criticism. The reasons for discouragement that I've seen boil down to three things. One is that, like that story I told you, criticism by other Christians. That, that just drives people crazy. That you try to serve the Lord and you get criticized for it by God's own people. And you realize, boy, I, my life would sure be easier if I didn't try to do anything. No one would criticize me then. Second reason is because they work and they see no results. That's been a discouraging thing for so many to teach a class and never see anyone get anything out of it, or to lead a church and never see anybody get baptized, saved, uh, never see life change. The third reason is just the circumstances of life. You get sick, you experience a financial downturn, you go through a time of grief or depression, and it just gets too hard, or some combination of the three. But the devil uses discouragement against us in so many ways. So as Paul's writing to the Corinthians in this second letter, he's going to, in chapter 4, talk about some of the discouragements he's had, some of the difficulties of being an apostle. But first, what we want to look at tonight is, before he starts griping, he's going to say, and yet, here's the reasons why I'm never going to stop serving Jesus. And that's what we'll look at tonight. Chapter 6 uh, verse 1, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So therefore, always, 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 you see, therefore, you should ask yourself, okay, what came before this? Now, it's been a week since we studied this, so let me remind you. He's talking about how we're ministers of a new covenant, 
how we are the fragrance of the knowledge of the glory of God everywhere we go. God uses us to bring people to Himself. We have the Holy Spirit empowering us, and the Holy Spirit brings freedom wherever He goes and transforms everyone who encounters Him into the image of Jesus Christ. Remember the way chapter 3 ends and how it says we're, we're constantly being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other as uh, by the Lord who is the Spirit. So all these things, Paul says, therefore we have this ministry by the mercy of God. I love that phrase. What he's saying is serving God is a privilege. It's not something you earn. God doesn't look down. See, this is the way the world works. The world works this way. You, you look at a, a college class, let's see. A, a corporate headhunter comes to a university and says, okay, give me your five best accounting students or your five best marketing students or your five best uh, communicators on your campus. And they interview those people for the job. Well, that's not the way God works at all. He doesn't work on the basis of merit. He works on the basis of grace. If God worked on the basis of merit, your dog would get in and you wouldn't, right? So God works on the... So that's why Paul says, by the mercy of God, we have this ministry. I want to, I want to read you another passage in a whole other letter. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. Paul writes and says, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were who were to believe in Him for eternal life. What I love about that is Paul is saying, God chose me to be an apostle, not because of my intellect, although we can read Paul's letters and see he was very, very intelligent. That's not why God chose him. Not because of my courage, although I think any one of us would say, I wish I had the courage and the boldness of Paul. Not because of my incredible faith, not because that I as a as a as a Pharisee, was very morally devout. No, he chose me because I was the worst of sinners. Isn't that ironic? He chose me because I was the worst of sinners, and he knew if I can save this one, he'll be my poster boy for mercy. I can show people, look, if I can save someone who persecuted the church, what can I do for you? So Paul, said, Paul starts off by saying, I don't get discouraged because I know that I have this ministry by his mercy. I didn't choose to serve God. He chose me and called me out of His mercy. Verse 2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend, every, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So in my Bible, he says, we refuse to practice cunning. In the King James Version, it says craftiness. In the NIV, it says deception. What he's saying is, we don't use trickery. We don't spin the truth. We don't con people. We don't embellish. We're not trying to sell you something. We're just telling the truth. And that's one of the encouraging things about what we do. If you're selling a product, 
and no one buys your product, you might say to yourself, well, maybe I'm not a very good salesman. On the other hand, if you're a fireman and you go door to door saying, y'all evacuate, there's a wildfire coming down the side of the hill, y'all better get out of here or in 20 minutes it's going to be too late and no one leaves, that's not your fault because you're simply telling the truth. You see the difference? We're not selling a product, we're telling the truth. And therefore, if people reject our message, it's not our fault, it's their decision. And so that's helpful. We are not cunning. We're not deceptive. We're not crafty. All we have to do is tell the plain truth. Now, are there ways we can be uh, winsome in the way we communicate? Or, or can we try our best to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of our neighbors so we know how best to communicate to them? That's all fine. Yes, that's, that's important. But what's most important is that we tell the truth. I like to think about it this way. You know, I don't care what president you want to name, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, all the way down. I think one of the worst jobs in the world is to be the press secretary of the president. It's a horrible job because no matter what you think of any particular president, they're going to say and do th some things that you as the press secretary aren't going to agree with. And you've got to stand up there and pretend you agree with it. You've got to answer the questions. The reporter says, well, why did he sign this bill? Or why did he say this? And in your mind, you're thinking, I don't know why he did. He's a fool. But you can't say that. You have to stand up there and, and give a justification for it. And, and, you know, every president has their bonehead statements they make, right? Uh, I'm not going to quote any because I'm going to get in trouble. But, you know, every president, they've got, they've got examples you have to stand up there with a straight face and say, well, he, here's what he meant. And this is, you know, he wasn't making a mistake. And that's a really hard job. We don't have that problem. We don't have that difficulty. First of all, the Lord God Almighty does not need to be defended. All we have to do is tell the truth. And if people don't accept the truth, that's not our fault. So that's another reason not to be discouraged. We're the spokesman of the truth that brings life. Verses 3 and 4, he goes on and says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, what he's trying to communicate is, don't be discouraged if sometimes there's a lack of fruit because it's not necessarily your fault. Again, one of the reasons for discouragement among God's servants is we feel like I'm doing my best, but I don't see any results. And what Paul is saying here is don't let that discourage you. Now, when he says, even if our message is veiled, that may seem like a weird statement. But if you go back and read chapter 3, he made that reference back then. Remember, there weren't chapters in Paul's letter. We, we added those later. So Paul's just referring to something he said a couple sentences ago. Just to refresh your memory, what he was saying in chapter 3 was, uh, when Moses came down from the mountain, from seeing God face to face, his face glowed. The face of Moses glowed. And then when the, the glow of that face started to dissipate, he put a veil over his face so people wouldn't be distracted and say, oh, well, Moses, you haven't been with God for a while. And Paul used that image of Moses with his veiled face to say, the irony is to this day, my fellow Jews, when they read the words of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, 
there's a veil on their hearts. So they're reading the truth of God, but they're not getting it. There's a veil over their hearts. They're seeing words that clearly point to Jesus, but they don't see it. You know, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice offered in place of Isaac. Jesus is uh, the one who parts the Red Sea so they can walk across and get away to safety. All those things and so many more point to Jesus. But Paul's fellow Jews would sit and read it every Sabbath day and wouldn't get it because a veil covered their hearts. So now when he says, our message today seems to be veiled. Why? Because he says, the God of this age is doing it. Who's he talking about? The God of this age. Make sure there's a little G, not a big G there. He's talking about the devil. By the way, I just in my quiet time recently read John 14, 30, where Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. So let's just take a little side note for a moment. Does that mean that the devil is in charge of this world? I thought Jesus was the king of this world. Well, you're right. Jesus is the king of planet Earth. Jesus is the king of the universe. So when Jesus calls the devil in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world, you have to remember that Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, whenever he uses the term the world, he's not talking about planet Earth. He's talking about the way of wickedness, the, the system that seems to run things around here, the way things, the way things get done. It's, it's the idea of don't be a friend of the world, right? Don't, don't let the world lead you astray. It's confusing for us in English because there's two different ways the term the world is used in the Bible. Jesus is not saying that Satan rules this planet, certainly not this universe. He's saying in all the godless ways of our society, the devil is in charge. He's behind these things. He leads these things. He exploits these things, whether it's materialism, whether it's, uh, whether it's atheism, whether it's uh, you know, the, the desire for personal gain and personal, um, personal pleasure, all the things that lead us astray, the devil is the king of all of that. So back to what Paul says, the God of this age. He's not calling the devil a literal God. He's saying people in this age worship the things of Satan. They don't know that. They don't realize they're... In fact, you talk to most people and they'll say, well, I'm not religious at all. They don't realize everybody's religious. You may not go to a church. You may not have a set of doctrines. You may not perform rituals, but you worship something. Everyone worships something. Everyone devotes themselves to something. Everybody believes in something. And for too many people, unwittingly, they are believing and trusting and serving worshiping that which leads them away from God, away from eternal life, away from life more abundant. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I just got through listening to a book on audio about how we make up our minds. And the author, it wasn't a Christian book, it was, but it's written by a, a sociologist. It was really interesting. He said, we tend to think that we're all real rational creatures. And if you give somebody a, a good argument for why they're wrong and, and you're persuasive enough, they'll change their minds. He said, that's not true. We've done studies and we've found. He said, it, it's like 
Your reasoning is like the rider sitting on top of an elephant. Does the rider have some influence over the elephant? Yes, but the elephant ultimately decides where it's going to go. For most people, their, their elephant isn't their mind. It's not their reason. It's their intuition. It's their emotions. It's, it's what they want to believe. So it's the devil is that elephant who's saying, okay, you can give me all the arguments you want, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you nice and comfortable in this lifestyle. He's blinded so many people to the truth. So many people from seeing the truth of God's Word so that He makes spiritual truth seem to them to be ridiculous. Keep that in mind. When you witness to your friend and they don't want to hear it, when you invite, invite, invite them to come to church with you and they say, oh yeah, maybe someday, but they don't come. Keep that in mind when you pray and pray and pray and don't see anything happen. It's hard for people to admit they need the Lord. So what do we do when people are unresponsive? What do you do when you're pastoring a church or you're leading a Sunday school class or you're trying to minister to a group of kids or you're trying to witness to someone who's lost and they're unresponsive? I'm not getting this from the Word of God. These are just my, my uh, words of advice based on Scripture. Number one, pray for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Remember, He's the one who makes changes in people's hearts. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, whatever that takes. Number two, ask the Lord if there's anything you can do differently or better. Remember, God can use you, but He also wants you to be humble enough to say, Lord, what do I need to do differently? And it could very well be that His answer will be, just keep on keeping on. Then again, He could say, you know what, you've, you've toiled on this ground long enough, let somebody else take over. Just ask Him. And then number three, keep being faithful. Just because you have an un, seemingly unproductive ministry doesn't mean you should stop. Or even if you stop doing that particular ministry, that you should stop doing ministry altogether. I'm always encouraged by Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. But the whole illustration is of farming. If you've never gardened before and you plant seed and you keep watering and tending, and after two weeks you see nothing come out of the ground, don't get discouraged. It's coming. Experienced farmers know it takes a while for, for a plant to produce fruit. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Keep being faithful and you will reap. Don't give up in the midst of it. And by the way, just because you can't see the fruit doesn't mean it's not there. There are probably things going on in the ministry you do that you're not aware of. And you'll only see when you get to heaven. So keep being faithful. And then finally, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is we don't get discouraged because we think about what God has done for us and we know he can do the same thing for others. Paul's testimony of salvation is something he was so excited about. He told it he told that story over and over again. It's recorded at least 3 times in scripture. So we told we know he told it at least that many times. Probably many more than that. So when he says 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. Remember, what did, G what did Paul see when he met Jesus? He saw a bright light. The bright light from heaven and a voice that said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul literally came out of darkness and into the light of Christ. And then at first, he couldn't see anything because standing in the light of Christ had blinded him, had taken away his sight. And then Ananias came and laid hands on him and called him Brother Saul. And the scales fell off his eyes. What a perfect picture of salvation for Paul. He'd been stumbling in the darkness, and now he could see. Sounds like a hymn, doesn't it? Paul said, he's done that for me. I know he can do that for others. And that, so I don't get discouraged. When we get discouraged, I think it's important for us to think about our own testimony, rehearse that story in our own lives. How did you come to know Christ? What has he done for you? How has he brought light into parts of your life that once were dark? How has he saved you from decisions that you would have made that would have been terrible? Think about the hope you now have because of, your, because of Christ's presence in you. So not just your past and all the ways he saved you, but what you have to look forward to. And realize there are millions and millions of people that don't have that story of salvation. They look back at their past and all they see is shame. They look ahead to their future and all they see is anxiety because they don't know what's going to happen. Think about how they don't have that knowledge of forgiveness. They don't have that joy of knowing that there is a God who loves them. They don't have that hope that someday they're going to walk with Him and experience perfection. Think about how there are so many people who don't have what we have. It's hard to get discouraged when you take your mind off yourself and recognize there are still so many people that need the love of Christ. So let me just close with this. You, you probably won't be surprised to know I know virtually nothing about the process of making wine. But I read this paragraph and I thought it was really appropriate for this. Uh, it's called The Lesson of the Vineyard. The first year... A vineyard plants shoots of vines instead of seeds because those yield the strongest vines. At the end of the first growing season, he cuts them back. A second year passes, he cuts them back again. After the third year, he finally sees his first viable clusters of grapes. If he's a serious vintner, he leaves those clusters on the vines. He does not harvest them. For most vintners, it's not until year four that they bring in their first real harvest. If they're growing grapes for winemaking, they'll bottle the harvest, but won't really taste the fruits of their labors until year seven or eight. And in terms of when the wine is good enough to really make a profit, most vineyards won't reach a break-even point for their investment until year 15, 18, or beyond. So think about that. Now, if people who make wine are able to be that patient, they've spent all this money, bought land, planted, fertilized, tended, and it's 15, 18, 20 years before they even see a profit, how much more steadfast should we be? How much more should we persevere? Whatever ministry God has called you to do, whether it's something that has a title or it's something simple like, I pay attention to my neighbors. I have a conversation with my barber whenever I go in to get my hair cut and I pray for 
her or him. Whatever your ministry for the Lord is, don't give up. Keep on keeping on because God can use you and God is using you. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we just pray for your Holy Spirit to produce in us that kind of perseverance that is not just willing, but excited to serve you each and every day. To remember, O oh Lord, that we have this ministry based on your mercy. You didn't choose us because of our skill. Lord, you, you chose us because we were sinners who needed grace. I pray, Lord, that you would, when we face discouragement, that we would trust in you, that we would see from you if there's anything different we need to do, that we would be prayerful, and that we would remember, O oh Lord, the opportunity, the privilege and the opportunity we have to serve you by loving others. Lord, I pray that we would see some of the fruits of our labors and that it would encourage us. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.